Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today we're talking all things training within the industry, and who better to talk to than Kim Wilkins. Welcome, Kim, to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, an honour to be asked to come along. No, it's a real privilege to have you on, and I guess where to start is, do you want to introduce to our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from, and what position you hold? Yeah, sure. So my name's Kim Wilkins. I'm the head keeper at Manor Wildlife Park in Tenby in Wales, and I've been in the zoo industry now for ooh, a little bit longer than I'd like to admit but about about 16 years now and I've gone from volunteer position up to my current position over that time. Quite a journey I'm sure and I think everyone's got those stories to tell those real journey moments and those those keystone moments those real stories to be told throughout their career. Have you got them Kim? Have you got those real moments which have kind of made you break through the industry into the position you are? Absolutely um I actually when I was doing my degree I actually wasn't sure that that was actually what I wanted to do I was a bit of a crossroads in my life and then I got a, a job um, on the presentations department a part-time job in the presentations department at Bristol Zoo I got the chance to work alongside some incredible trainers uh, doing the the daily displays and that was it I was bitten by the training bug um, I had the amazing opportunity and probably quite um it was a bit of a baptism of fire really I moved to Turkey and became a dolphin trainer there for therapy with autistic and disabled children and really sort of honed my craft there really it it really was you know you had to sort of do or die and uh, it was incredible so that was probably the pivotal moment where I learned most of my training skill and then had the opportunity to come back to the UK obviously started my career at Yorkshire Wildlife Park and I, that's where the majority of my career has been I've done 11 years there with fabulous animals and I think I'm probably best known for my work with the polar bears oh my goodness me they are fantastic beasties and what what an incredible species to train you know all, all animals are intelligent but these are just that extra extra level and they've really really pushed me to to hone my craft so yeah those two really looking after such a big group of polar bears and then working with the dolphins in turkey definitely honed me uh, into the person i am today for better or worse <laughs> Some great, great leapfrog moments. And you're exactly right. You've got some really iconic animals there, which only uh, people can dream of working with, let alone working with them day on day. So, yeah, I'm sure a lot of listeners being very jealous. I, I guess for those people listening and, and for, you know, whether it be your younger self or that, that newcomer coming into the industry or simply people in the industry wanting to branch out and, and expand their craft. Do you have any true advice? Is there one trait, I guess, one personality characteristic that you've got inside yourself, which has allowed you to deal with the, the craziness of this amazing industry? The, the, you know, it does get overwhelming. It does get on top of us at times. But as you've, you've shown, if you put the hard graft in, it really pays dividends. Yeah, if I was just coming into the industry now, I think my biggest piece of advice would be just be brave and have belief in your own ability. Um, it's so easy when you get into like your first zoo. It's I think as a business, it's quite nomadic. You know, we all move around and whether that's for 
a different team dynamic or whether that's for a different species and if you're not brave and you don't branch out I think you limit yourself almost as a keeper especially in the early days I think it's so important for us to sort of find our niche and where we work well and what our strengths are like I said when I started animal training it was purely by chance that I got my position on that particular section and then I knew that was what I wanted to do but yeah I think um, it's a it's a very different industry I believe to what I started in 15 years ago very very different and I think it's hard for new people coming in to find their place in the face of like all those different things that are surrounding it the financial crisis that we're all in now you know zookeepers live on the edge financially anyway and I think that makes it harder you know you're trying to survive and do this incredibly amazing but very sometimes draining job so yeah newbies have to be tough and they have to be brave because it's a crazy crazy world in the zoo industry no very very much so and it couldn't have been a better myself now i guess the reason we're here the reason for this podcast is training and as i've said who better to talk to and i'm gonna blow your trumpet for you you're very modest but top trainers in the uk with regards to training let's dial it down for everyone talk to me about training and i guess the, the four main elements of that training what what is the makeup of any animal and the training behind it well you know training is an amazing thing because you know behavior is what an animal does it's what we all do in response to our environment so we get those antecedent cues we behave and then the consequence follows so it's just taking that basic science and applying it to our everyday husbandry and i think that's absolutely essential just to to get that because there's still now in uk zoos controversy between whether training is natural whether we should allow the animals to behave naturally which we shouldn't be doing because biasa guidelines say that it should be within the realms of the animal unless we're asking the animal to do something completely out of its normal behavioral repertoire we are literally just getting key behaviors on cue to help us manage the animals to improve their welfare and i just think it's absolutely essential for good welfare-based practice going forward it should be the bread and butter really of of husbandry it really should exactly that exactly that and i, I guess to, to delve more into this industry then and i think you're going to have a fair few of these examples from your career and these amazing animals you work with do, do you have a few examples of maybe some and, and problem is probably the wrong word but maybe some characteristics and behaviors that we're not really desiring in our species in our, our captive populations what, what can you give as a little gem to our listeners in terms of how you've dealt with them and, and how you've gone about it having worked with carnivals i think carnivals are almost synonymous with pacing regardless of size whether it's a small felid or it's a great big polar bear people almost accept that that's normal you know that's what they do it's not it's not what they do <laughs> biggest thing i found in terms of reducing that behavior is to be unpredictable you know everybody wants to see something fed a particular time of day with a talk so people can get there but i think finding the happy medium is key to that we still do at yorkshire wildlife park is um, a carnival feed but we don't specify which feed that is so we can feed whichever carnivore it is and it's not the same time you know for that animal every day and i think that's key um varied uh, places where you do public interactive feeds you know where if you pay for an experience varying where you do it or what they get everybody should have a good enrichment schedule for their animals that's key i also think that going forward looking at where we house male and females should we be housing a male tiger far away from the female so that when she's in season he's not pacing like a loony the other side of the fence because he hasn't got a breeding recommendation you know if you're going to manage behavior and you're going to manage frustration behaviors in particular you need to look at where and how you manage 
those animals but for me absolutely variety is key I don't think you'll ever get rid of the pacing I think that innate behavior of wandering will always be there especially for those large ranging carnivores like tigers and the leopards and the bears but yeah trying to fill that time so that there's less time to do those behaviors that's yeah that's key yeah some some great advice there and I, I think that leads perfectly to do you have any top hacks? Do you have any alongside this? Obviously, it's fine putting into action these amazing plans that, you know, someone like yourself can advise and it, it you make it sound very easy. Um, and it is as long as you know what you're doing. And that's very important. But uh, for me and, and for a new keeper, it, it's very easy to go, OK, cool. I've got my target stick. I've got my whistle or my clicker. That's training. Obviously, time has moved on quite quickly now and isn't as simple as that. Do you have any any true hacks? Are there certain tools that you should be using or, or simple techniques? Absolutely. Um, I think actually what you just said is sometimes where people almost stumble with first hurdle, they believe that they have to have a target stick and they have to have a clicker. You don't. If you're training an emergency recall into a house, simply getting that animal to associate that place with a positive reinforcer, you're already onto a winner. You're training your animals all the time. It's just you have to teach and what interaction it is that you want that's good so when we trained the lions at ywp and we wanted them on an emergency recall we associated the bell we had a bell and when they came in onto a main feed we rang the bell so in the end we started to um phase out the amount of meat we were giving them like reduce it they still get a good feed but not quite as much i tell you when you started to ring the bell they were in uh we did an emergency uh, drill an emergency drill and we had six lions in in eight minutes that's just positive association that's got nothing really to do with targeting them you've literally just made them associate the the bell with the food so there's an easy bit of training you can do um you know i'd applaud anybody who's got their target stick though and their clicker and they're ready to go absolutely that's what we want i think if if your your basic behavior is targeted because that allows you to move your animal to the wayboard or you know the other side of the the den for some reason you know so it is basic behavior and i do think it's important timing is everything if you click just before the animals got to the target or you've delayed it too much and it's touched the target and moved away slightly away so timing is everything it sounds silly but practice your click some people go click do you know what I mean? It's really slow. It needs to be click. It needs to be precise. And you need to mark that behavior straight on. Timing of your, your marker or your bridge is key. If you're new to the game, practice it. Your whistle should be sharp and precise or your clicker should be really quick. And you need to be careful about where you mark. I think that's one thing when I'm training new trainers, one of the things that we really get right first is to not if you blow that whistle for two seconds completely different behavior can show in that two seconds where if it's there that's it that's what we want and it makes you your building of that behavior much quicker and much more precise some really 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 great advice and i think it is exactly that we're all still learning we're all very much uh, taking it step by step and with these sort of hacks it's only going to get easier so some some really really great advice now with, with regards to learning Obviously, with anyone listening, wanting to learn, doesn't matter what level you are in the industry, what, what can they do to develop themselves? What's out there in terms of training to, to be able to further themselves? Well, we are so, so lucky in this country that we have a body, an organisation like Biaza. Obviously, Jim Mackey, Joe Mason absolutely pioneered ABTC Biaza accreditation qualification for zoo animal trainers. That's fantastic. We've had nothing like that in terms of support um, and driving that forward. So, you know, I can't applaud them enough. They absolutely work their socks off. You know, um, I was lucky 
lucky enough to be part of that first cohort of students. The, the course is fantastic, it's comprehensive, it's for everybody from just coming in and not really sure about what training is, right up to people who might have done a little bit but they're not quite sure. I can't applaud it enough and to have framework in place where actually we're achieving a consistent level of trainer I think that's really important. You know, even myself, you know, I've, I've been training animals for a long time, but up until I got qualified, say, oh, I'm an animal trainer. And they're like, oh, really? Who says? So this is great. This means that we are all working to a similar level and that can only benefit the animals that we're looking after. I think when animals move between our collections, if they're going from people who are really good at training to people who aren't quite as experienced or vice versa, I think it's difficult for the animals. So I think if we're working for, to that that normal level and obviously um there'll be the instructor course coming out through Biaza as well that's key because then we're training more people to train to an accepted standardized level and I think that's fantastic you know and like I said we've had nothing like that before within the the UK zoo industry so that's a massive leap forward yeah no totally and I think you've hit the nail on the head I think it's a, a much bigger thing also that this is hopefully only the beginning of not just training but a qualified animal keeper you know we, we've got degrees you've got qualifications flying around but to have a certified zoo proper qualification which is a zoo level it's what we're after it's it's I say it's uh, leading the way for sure you know we all do years at college there's nothing really we get little modules on behavior we might do a little bit but yeah to push it that next level i think is super important and like i said you know at the beginning i think that behavior modification training is is such a key part of good animal welfare and husbandry that essential that we get it right no totally totally now we're going to head into the big questions now this is part of the podcast where we tackle some of the bigger questions in the industry. But I've got a feeling the first one should be quite simple, but it could explode into information. So we'll see how we go, kid. We're going to start with how is an animal's welfare actually enhanced by training? Is it is it worthwhile? Amazing. Yeah, perfect question. Uh, 100%, absolutely. I've seen animals that could have been trained, but weren't be separated from pack mates or, or herd, herd mates, completely panic. They've come in to be anaesthetized. They've been in a complete panic. Because they're in a panic, the adrenaline's up. They end up fighting the anaesthetic. Then they need topping up. Then the recovery is longer. If that, you know, in some cases we know that actually that doesn't happen and we end up losing the animal because it's been so stressed. So, you know, and then I've seen animals that are injection trained will willingly just sit super calm, take their injection and literally wander back into the den and go to sleep. They've needed no top up because they've been completely calm. They've been trained for that scenario. So they know that it's nothing to worry about and uh, that animal wakes up and gets on with its life that's fantastic that's the biggest thing for welfare avoiding unnecessary anesthesias or unnecessary stress i think that's absolutely key no for sure your animal's health is definitely the priority and, and you've hit nail on the head i think it is training can only enhance that so a great way to battle through that first question that leads us on to number two and number two is we all live in a very crazy workplace the zookeeping profession isn't just simply uh, a stereotypical poo-picking role anymore. We are expected to be nutritionists. We're expected to be welfare officers. We're expected to be animal trainers and so on and so forth. The, the role is very broad, along with whatever your collection also asks you to do. So with all that in mind, 
can you incorporate a, a training routine into your routine? Because obviously some people may feel it's just not possible. Absolutely. And it's definitely um, a question I get asked a lot, you know, when I go out to conferences and things like that. I would say that you have to interact at some level with your animals in the day, whether it's the crazy morning cleaning or if it's the shutdown in the evening. At some point, you are going to be there with your animal and you are going to need to shift your animal. Uh, you are going to need, if you're practicing, you know, good good care probably weigh your animal and I would just say to use these opportunities if you're if you're waiting for another animal to come in and you've got one in the house train that one whilst you're waiting for the other one it's about utilizing your time as best as you can and you're absolutely right you know the demands on keeper time I think are more than ever we are expected to wear a lot of hats throughout the day of different tasks there's always time you go with those animals every day it is part of your routine just two to three minutes is all it takes. I use the same example of training the emergency recall with the lions. They have to come in twice a week for us to service the paddocks. So why wouldn't we use that opportunity to train an emergency recall? They're coming in anyway, so let's use it. So that's a really nice example, I suppose, of using your normal routine to train a really important behaviour. You know, and in the morning as well, those animals have to go out. So you could do your injection training as they're going out through the chutes. That's what you've got. We used to do it with the bears as well. Uh, the bears would come, they sit in their tunnels having a look so you just take the opportunity if they were there and you had like two seconds to do a bit of injection training or a bit of target training so yeah being really organized with your time is key you've also got to have the one i think a lot of people go oh, it's just too much faff too much faff i've got to get on you know i haven't got time for this i would argue is that you don't have time not to do it because when you've invested the time in the first place actually your life becomes a Blooming sight easier because instead of waiting for an animal to come in because it's scared to death of coming in the house because last time it came in you darted it you've put that effort in and that animal comes bombing in and you can get on with your day so yeah it takes a bit of time at first but worth the time investment totally and i guess linking to that then is we, we've alluded to obviously these certified training positions and i guess how you can incorporate into your day but some people, not myself, but some people might say that the animal keeping role is one thing and an animal trainer is another. Are they separate roles or are they together and should they be together? At the moment, we've got a bit of a mix throughout the industry. So we've got some people like they're absolutely key together and you can't do one with the other. And then we've got one completely other end of the scale where people go, I'm no trainer. I haven't got time for that. I'm not doing it. This is how I've always done it. It works. And there's a massive, massive grey area between the two. So I would say it's definitely not joined at the minute. Those two roles are not one. But I absolutely think that we're moving in that direction. And I think in 10 years time, hopefully less, but in about 10 years time, they'll be synonymous with each other. How lovely or how lovely would it be if in 10 years time we're at the point where they are in the States, where actually they have core animal training departments to support the keepers how fabulous would that be no very much so i mean that's the keeping side but on the animal side are, are there any animals which don't benefit from training and, and that's obviously across all taxonomic groups yeah it's a tough one i mean i'm megafauna always have been but i don't think so i i think you can definitely apply different types of training to different animals so that it works better for them if you're working with a flight animal like a uh, herd of gazelle that actually really go, don't like people that much and you're like well how the blooming hell do i even make contact and when i'm around they just get stressed and they want to leave using uh negative reinforcement and I don't mean negative by like punishing the animal if it doesn't come like if those animals are stressed in your presence and you're there and you just watch for those animals because you'll know your animals if you watch for those relaxation behaviors so you stood there stood there and they're like they can see you but they're calm 
that's it and that's when you leave because the reinforcer is actually when you take yourself away from them so i would definitely say it's the type of animal that you're dealing with and how and applying the correct training strategy to them you know i've seen butterflies trained to a pheromone cue you know it really is incredible and i think yeah as long as you know what you're doing and you seek good advice you can train anything and i do think that it is beneficial for welfare you are never be convinced that it's not because of the amount of data available you know that's been done on animals both before and after we did a study with one of our students where we trained our leopard to run between different targets across the enclosure because he's rather portly um, and he didn't come out on show and he also tended to pace quite a lot at particular times of day so we had a student study him before we started the training and then after we did the training and after he'd had an exercise session he was much calmer those times where he would have traditionally paced he wasn't or it was significantly less uh, you know i could i could give you examples all, all day long but yeah absolutely train anything definitely believe it's good for welfare definitely and some really great examples and you, you touched on something at the start there perception in the modern day everything has to be positive it's a positive reinforcement they assume that that must be the way forward that must be the only way you must train because your animal must love you no matter what and positive reinforcement just sounds great in itself doesn't it it, it sounds like it should be the only way but you just alluded to it obviously there are other ways absolutely you know, uh, Biaza Animal Training Guidelines state you need to be working with positive reinforcement. The animal should never be fearful of you. You know, you should never stress it out or put it in any pain. And I would never, ever disagree with that. There's four quadrants to training. And I think to take any of them out of the toolkit kind of limits you. And I think that, you know, uh, if I've got a polar bear that loves food and he wants to come to me and he's not frightened of me, he's going to be easy to positively reinforce. But if I've got that herd of gazelle, that actually I'm the worst thing that they could possibly see because they're a flight animal and I might actually eat them. You need to adjust your training plan accordingly. Um, and it's all about knowing your animal, their behavior and their innate instincts as to which one you choose. You know, obviously I would never ever want to use positive punishment. That's absolutely like no, unless you were in danger. You know, if, if an animal turned on you and you had to use positive punishment to get it away from you in an emergency, then use that. But it should, definitely shouldn't be your go-to training training procedure but uh, yeah I think to take certain quadrants of that out of your toolkit does limit you and it can find certainly with new trainers as well if they're like right I could only treat this animal if the animal's not coming in for treating how do you train it and I think they hit that block and go on oh, no I can't train this animal because it won't come to me so yeah I think that would be my advice always try and use positive reinforcement but be aware that there are other ways to train but if you're not an experienced trainer definitely seek support and advice and information good literature for people just starting out would be you know the classic bible of Karen prior don't shoot the dog fabulous book it is my bible i still go back to it now and anything by ken ramirez or um susan friedman fantastic reading you're only going to become a better trainer i would just yeah read them always go back to them and they're always there it's a brilliant investment in your in your own self-development to, to buy those books no exactly that and i think to expand with that and, and not to get them bombarding at your door we're, we're there as a collective we, we talk about it a lot how we we're meant to be one unit we're meant to be going forward for education for conservation you know we're in it for the same goals you're there for your animals and, and if you don't know your collection can't truly give you the answer doesn't mean the industry doesn't know and and more and more as time goes on i think the opening of that door is coming 
And I think people are becoming more and more open to help and to branch out to other collections. I agree. You know, obviously, um, I'm chair of the Animal Behaviour and Training Working Group for Biaza. We've got a whole host of people that cover all different taxa from fish to birds to mammals and everything in between. So if people are genuinely struggling, you know, we've got a Facebook page. Just click on us. We'll add you in and anything you want to ask. There's such a supportive community there. I'm sure they would have either had the same problem or we can direct you to somebody who might know more about that particular species. So yeah, loads of support there. And yeah, Facebook's probably the easiest way to, to get hold of it. Um, if you can't, if you don't go on the Facebook page and just want to search me, they can send me a message. I've got no issues. And as you are finding out, I could talk about training all day long. So <laughs> it's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll conclude the big questions. We've got one more question for you. And that is, when building an enclosure, what should be considered with regards to easing, I guess, animal training to making it more accommodated? And i got to be honest, these are big questions. They're meant to be a bit challenging. I saw yourself back in Abwak in, in 23, and I saw firsthand some of the adaptations for your, your polar bears. So Obviously, I feel like it might explode this question. So we'll see how we go, Kim. I think older housing for animals can be adapted. Absolutely. You've just got to look at your challenge, use what's in your budget, if you have a budget, and do what you can to sort of retrofit training apparatus. And actually, the the polar bear training apparatus at at Yorkshire Wildlife is um, a prime example of that. We didn't have that when we first started. and uh, But we found very quickly that with the foot issues and skin issues that polar bears can be prone to, we were going to need to have access to blood, skin scrape, hair plugs. So those that apparatus came from a mix of zoo funded and charity funded sources. And obviously when you show how helpful and useful that apparatus is, you start to build the momentum because more wants to go in so if you're building a new enclosure anything like a blood draw sleeve somewhere where you can sit the animal and access it to train so like a you know the the race systems even if it's just a little one just somewhere where you can get that animal and have little bits of not to sound unprofessional a little bit it's a little bits of chub sticking through that you can inject fabulous you know where you can access your animal easy if you're struggling for funds because i know that every you know all the different zoos across the uk have different budget some have none some have a little bit and some have no cap work within your means it doesn't have to be very expensive you can make a, a wooden corral and stick it next to your fence you know if you've got an, an electrified little bit or you've run your electric slightly higher up so the animal can come into the fence something as simple as that really works as well we certainly did that with the lions at yorkshire wildlife park so really uh crude wooden corral and we just trained them to come in against the the fencing and and then we went from there for injections and, and body checks oh but oh my goodness if we could have like almost like a bog standard list of things that we had to have for your birds or so, you know, your birds would be like an area where it could come and have its nails trimmed or its beak trimmed or, uh, you know, built-in way scales. There you go. <laughs> built-in way scales would be an absolute blessing, you know, where you can take your animal on and off um, every day. I think that training walls for the public are important, but I don't think that they should be used on daily displays. You know, it should be an ad lib. Some the people, the public can come along and watch you if you're doing a training session with an animal. But um, I certainly don't think that they should be scheduled every day because then it loses its enrichment value. I've, I've certainly visited some parks all over the world where they've got their training wall. It's fabulous, but they train those behaviours 
at that time of day because it's scheduled and it's written down for the public to come and see it i don't think that's how it should be done but yeah foot ports um for the for your larger animals really important bloods and, and foot inspections if you can but oh my good yeah that that's like like you said that's that's a whole plethora i there's loads of stuff that i would like to um to add but yeah equipment apparatus or an antecedent arrangement that aids basic husbandry checks so bloods skins open mouth x-rays if you can that would be the epic an x-ray wall where you could walk it in front of an x-ray screen oh that would be great <laughs> amazing yeah i to be honest that is exactly how i thought we'd end the big questions with an explosion of information so uh, you, you'd be happy to know we have concluded it we've got through it we've smashed through the big questions and we've managed it now before we do go on to this last element of the the podcast i do want to just chuck at you one last question and that is for anyone listening in for any new starters anyone who's in the industry or is maybe looking to leave the industry when it comes to animal training it can sometimes feel overwhelming it can seem something which is so large that maybe i'm not good enough for it why should someone be an animal trainer and i don't mean on an official qualification level i just mean on a daily basis within the role why should someone be an animal keeper and, and how good actually is that that feeling is that role within a zoo i think it's imperative you know I've, i don't make any secret of the fact that i think that you should do what you can do until you know how to do it better and we know that it's, it's evidence-based we know that this practice is good for our animals under our care you know they, there's a whole plethora of scientific evidence we're not making it up it's not just my opinion it's proven over and over again that this is good for animal welfare but I also agree that if you're starting out the language can sometimes be a bit scientific and you're like oh my god I have no idea what that means you know oh my god I can't do this it's overwhelming it's literally antecedent behavior consequences your ABC or your basic units of behavior if you can set an animal up to succeed you get its environment right so that it is more likely to do the behavior reinforce that animal that's it in a nutshell you know you can obviously there's a whole world and massive scientific stuff that comes out of that but this is your basic contingencies your, your basic units of behavior and if you have a voice uh, you know a clicker or a whistle and some food there you go you know you're off and it is that simple. If you're if you're new and you're looking to start training, the best thing you can do is plan your behaviour. So you need to know why you're training, and it needs to have a clear aim and a net welfare benefit to your animal. They're your basics. You know, we're not teaching a monkey to ride a motorbike. We're you know, this is core core behaviours, and they have to be justified. Ideally, you'd write your plan and you'd get it signed off by your senior on section, um, and then that you would check in as you go in through it. Also people who are new to training get really disheartened if they do write their plan and then the animal doesn't start, the animal is an animal and doesn't train to plan. And they go, oh my God, I've got it wrong. You know, I've, I've, I've had to change it. So I wasn't very good at planning. That's not true either. I write a training plan expecting to have to change it because they're animals, you know, they're not robots. They've all got their own individual personalities and we have to cater to that. And that's but that's fine um, and ultimately if you're having to change you're learning one other bit of advice i give if you were new be to get somebody to watch you or record your sessions oh my goodness i have been harshly critiqued by some of the, <laughs> the best trainers in the business and it's hard to listen to when somebody points out your mistake but oh my goodness you develop so much better as a trainer 
because you can see where you've gone wrong and you go, oh my God, I didn't even notice, you know? So that, that's really important, but it's, uh, yeah, it's absolutely key. And I do, yeah, it is daunting, but there's again, so much support for people if they just want to ask, there's loads of people, loads of people to help them. I would just push that point completely that you're not on your own. And we've all started somewhere. Some great, great words. And that leads us nicely into the last part of this podcast. It's called the quick fire round. It can go two ways. It either is treated like the quick fire round it was designed to do. But as the listeners will quickly be learning, the industry is full of talkers. And uh, these questions erupt into all. And I've got a feeling we know where this is going, Kim. But we'll see how we go. Fingers crossed. Now, number one is, I would say quite a tough one, but it's your favourite animal. Oh, polar bears. <laughs> I hate to be predictable, but yes, polar bears. Polar bears, now it's got a, a very special one to yourself or just species as a whole? Oh, um, Nobby at Yorkshire Wildlife Park. He's my best boy, best trained bear you'll ever find. He's brilliant. Bless him. Okay, so number two then. What, in your opinion, is the best side of the industry? Oh, being with your animals, 100%. That's, that's what we're it's what we're in it for you know all the other stuff is just other stuff we want to be there for our animals and we want to look after them we want to give them the best life possible you know and the privilege to work with some of the most endangered species on the planet that none of us would have even seen if it wasn't for our career yeah here, here. couldn't agree more now number three this is a quite hard one uh, and that is what is your top tip for mental health and well-being wow that's really apt um <laughs> i um I think try not to let it uh, snowball. If you've got a problem, nip it in the bud. Don't think, oh, you know, so-and-so is too busy. Uh, they haven't got time to listen to me. Oh, I'm being soft. Don't. Don't get inside your head. If you're struggling with something small, deal with it then. If it's a disagreement with a colleague, have that adult conversation. If it's that you don't think something's been done properly with an animal, have that conversation with your boss. D yeah, don't let it build up into a massive ball of frustration where you hate your job and you don't want to do it anymore. It's not what you thought it was going to be. No job is perfect by long mark. So yeah, nip it in the bud before it turns into a massive problem that makes you want to quit the industry altogether. I think that happens a lot. People just suck it up and get on with it. But I, I think that's a massive underlying problem within the industry that people just soldier on. No, totally, totally. And to, I'm going to do this for, for an animal training point of view. And you're the best one to ask this. Let me reverse that question for you. What is the top tip for mental health for your animal? That's brilliant. I would say offering that animal as much variety as you possibly can. I do believe that in the zoo industry, as much as we love and look after animals, they are devoid of a lot of challenges that they would have in the world and that's what they're geared for they are geared to problem solve and have not stress as in bad stress but like they've got to go and get their food or they've got to worry about getting a mate or marking the territory so i think variety is is key um i think it's easy to go and check them clean them feed them move on clean feed move on so varying if you can the time of day that you service an animal or feed an animal or give enrichment as much variety as you possibly can when i was at ywp we used to paddock swap a lot especially with the bears they were never in the same environment for more than two days on the trot and they never knew when we were going to turn up and switch them you know so they were always like oh what's happening today you know uh, whether it's type of food or the amount of food or whether they get food that day at all you know anything like that if you can do it and it's suitable for your species that's what i would suggest and i i'm sure there's listeners that would think well you know my animal my animal doesn't do well with change of routine and i would say if that's the case you need to 
concentrate much more on your enrichment and training regimes and make sure that that is varied vary what you can and keep in place what you have to keep in place if, if that's the type of species that you're dealing with okay so what would you then improve within the industry i think and as controversial as it may be i think that keepers need to be paid better i think it's a massive reason why people leave the industry i think when you start off in the in the industry you know it's your first job and you, you're just lucky happy to have any money and be mildly independent from from your family but i think as you as you progress and you progress through life and you have partners and families i think you know you're working really really hard and when you're not getting the money for that i think it really starts to set in and you know like i said at the beginning with this current financial crisis we're in i think those keepers that were just about keeping their head above water have completely you know gone under and people have gone i need more money i'm not going to get it in my role i'm out and they're literally leaving to become dog trainers or or go not that there's anything wrong with that at all but they're just leaving the zoo industry you know or they i had two very good keepers that left and they've gone into completely unrelated animal fields just because the benefits were better the hours were better and the money was better and you know i don't think any of us take on this job expecting to be rich we all say we do it for love not money but we do all need to survive and look after our our financial futures and certainly for me when i've seen people leave that has been a major consideration and i think it's the thing that needs to be done you know somebody in my at my level in a different department might be on 10 to 15 grand more just because it's not animal based you know and i i just don't think that the qualifications that keepers have and the time that they put into their their craft is reflected in pay structure now i know that there are certain zoos in the uk that have actually taken that on board and they've given their their keepers a pay rise staff retention is so much better when people are getting that wage because they're like oh i'm working my backside off but it's okay because i'm getting paid you know enough for it. it's worth it and i i think it's very sad that we are seeing ex certainly experienced keepers leaving the industry altogether, not just moving facility, just coming out. It's really quite worrying. No, totally, totally couldn't agree more. And it's it's something we're definitely tackling in a few of these other episodes. And it's, it's, it seems to be a current theme, uh, especially around that 30 mark where people have got life changes coming, mortgages, life as a whole. And yeah, it's just uh, an issue which hopefully, I know Biaza and Iaza are looking into it. So hopefully we're... We'll get to a solution, but you're exactly right. Something to definitely improve on. Now, the next question I've got for you then can take you anywhere. And this is quite literally anywhere in the globe. That is, what zoo globally would you like to visit and why? Well, I, I've, I'm probably quite predictable, but I actually really love to go and uh, visit San Diego. It's just got that amazing rep. Um, and I really would like to go and see what all the fuss is about and see it for myself. Because they do some incredible stuff there. They really do, especially animal training wise. So from that perspective, I'd definitely like to go and have a look. Yeah, go and see what all the, the hype is about. Yeah, it's a very iconic zoo, isn't it? It's, uh, it's a zoo which I would be lying to you if it hadn't come up once or twice in this podcast already. I think it is like, a zookeeper thing, which is is coming through. It's almost in our blood, isn't it? To want the intrigue to get over there is, is unreal. So know exactly that. Now, I need you now to put on your mystic hat. I need you to try and look as best as you can into the future in 20 to 30 years do you see the role of zoos and zoos as we see it being the same today and i guess you can expand that into do you see training being the same in 20 to 30 years in our zoos i think what zoos will look like and what they're expected to deliver will change age-old debate of are zoos cruel 
you know, are we necessary, you know, with the loss of biodiversity in the wild, you know, if you didn't like zoos, we're necessary evil. If you do like zoos, we're doing the best job we can do. We're funding the conservation. We're trying to halt the loss of species in the wild and, and grow understanding of the species that are in our care. So I absolutely think we'll become more of a art, you know, a preservation of genetics more so than we are now. And I believe the way that we display those animals will change massively in the face of the anti-zoo movement and, you know, the granting of a certain species of animals being given the same rights as some as humans, you know, um, in certain parts of the world. We're going to have to go with that, you know, the, the shutting down of the breeding programs in SeaWorld. Well, that's people don't want orcas in captivity. So what's next? Is it the elephants? Do we then go to it's, it's that domino effect. So we need to, as an industry, need to be ahead of the curve and we need to make sure that we are being progressive and moving away from old style small enclosures we are hitting all the the um needs of the animals more so than we are now and i'm not saying we're doing a bad job now but there's always room for improvement always um I, you know all of us and i'm sure the people listening could give me an example of a really good zoo and one that's actually quite poor and that shouldn't be a case we should all be up at that level in terms of training, I absolutely hope it's not where we are at the minute. I hope that it's it becomes more recognised and its benefits more valued. I would like to see us in a state that the America is in at the moment, where actually in the really good zoos, they have core animal training departments with the expertise and knowledge to go out and support the keepers and work together with the keepers, because I think that's necessary. I, th You know, the, the reason for this podcast is that the fact that there's people that want to do it, but they're not sure how to start. Well, how wonderful would it be if actually at the beginning of their zookeeping career, they had the resource of an animal training department that was science, evidence-based, you know, everything was assessed and that can all go into that huge body of knowledge. It's essential. And I, that's where I see certainly myself working to it and trying to use the role that I have as chair of the Animal Behaviour and Training Working Group to try and drive that change. Um, and actually, it's not just something that we do when we've got five minutes. It's actually imperative to what we're doing and it affects our animals in so many different ways. But yeah, that's what I would like to see in, in 20 years time. Yeah, no, some really, really great words. And I'm sure with the, uh, the continued work from someone like yourself, we're only on the, the straight and narrow. So uh, yeah, fingers crossed. Now, the, the second to last question I've got for you, and this is a little probing, so bear with me. And that is, in the industry, who's your idol? He'll go all embarrassed. And I'll <laughs> probably tell me I've said it. But it's actually Jim Mackey. Jim is a powerhouse. He ticks along there quietly really groundbreaking and really working hard behind the scenes to, to push animal training forward and get it recognized and get it official and to a level and I think that is incredible you know what he and, and Joe Mason have achieved in the last four years it's just incredible just incredible you know and both of them I mean Joe now Joe now works for for guide dogs but um just the passion for it, it it seeps out of them and it's infectious and Jim will say something like, oh my god I've just learned you know he's like I sponge off of that man <laughs> but you know he's he and he's he's totally my kind of guy you know he used to be um a keeper trainer and he's developed that role he's now in charge of all the animal training at, at ZSL and he works alongside uh, the likes of Lewis, who um, gather the research and the information to do all that evidence-based training. I mean, that is got to be a market. That's what we got to be 
working towards despite the fact we have a really good laugh as well it's just a bonus but yeah absolutely my my top guy in the industry very very kind words bless you now we're on that last question we've nearly finished this podcast episode and that is one of the hardest questions i reckon can you kim sum up for all of us listening in the industry can you sum it up in only three words passion sacrifice um and making a difference yeah some three very fitting and very very lovely words to conclude this episode Uh, thank you so so much for coming on Kim from myself and the listeners I I can already say it's been a real privilege and thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge on this amazing topic oh you're you're more than welcome it's been an absolute pleasure and honor Um, and I I absolutely applaud you for taking the initiative and, and doing something so useful so well done thank you very much and hopefully we'll get you on again very very soon anytime take care of yourself until then Kim bye bye And that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook, or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey, learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.